Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs. My name is James, and today I am joined by Paul from Empress Miniatures. Hi, and how are you doing? Uh, doing just fine today. And we have Paul on today because um, Empress Miniatures is one of those long-standing go-to companies for a variety of miniature supplies, but he has a new rule set out, set in the uh, Vietnam era of wargaming, uh, Bohica. And uh, Paul, before we launch into your new rule set, the way I like to start this is, how did you get into wargaming? Oh, that's a, that's a bit of a long story and certainly a long time ago. Um, being a child of the 60s, uh, I suppose I, I came through what's properly known as the Airfix period. Um, in the company in the UK called Airfix was releasing some very nicely sculpted, molded plastic figures uh, for various periods. And you kind of get to that thing as a kid where there's a crossover between playing with toys and suddenly pretending you're an adult and getting into wargaming. I'm not sure exactly what year that supposedly happened, um, but I rolled into it then. And at that period, you had some of the, the great names, Charles Grant, Don Featherstone, uh, Peter Young, etc., who were um, doing wargaming. And in a way, kind of legitimised it for us kids because they'd been in World War II. Um, people like Brigadier Peter Young was the senior lecturer at Sandhurst. So it added a kind of a, um, a gloss to it that you weren't actually just being a kid and not quite growing up, which I suspect is what my parents thought. Um, and it was a, um, it just an interest, you know, fascination you get from reading comics to reading history. Uh, in those days, it wasn't that many years prior to World War II. My parents had been involved in World War II. Most of the, the adults I knew had been involved in World War II. So it was, a, it was a, an easy development and interest. And it continued on and it, it stopped when I was at university when I discovered uh, Wine, Women and Song for a few years. And then um, after that, when you, you have to grow up and be an adult, I found myself once again interested in getting back to it um, because it was an enjoyable hobby. So it's as simple as that. I think that's a common story. Once you take totally soldiers and integrate dice into it, then it's acceptable and legitimate. Um, now, at what point did you decide to actually launch a company? Um, you know, follow through and say, you know what, this isn't just a hobby, this can actually be a way of life. That, we set up Empress Miniatures 14 years ago and it was Kind of an accident. I, I, I can't say as I went through life saying, this is what I'm going to do. Um, it came from myself and a war games partner, Keith. And we were uh, meeting every Wednesday evening, um, playing a war game, usually talking too much, instead of rolling dice, as you do. And we decided that the periods that we were playing, we wanted to get into doing Vietnam. And we sat and wrote a set of rules, which have no relation to Bohica whatsoever, uh, called Purple Haze. And then we started to look around for some figures to buy. And we couldn't buy um, any figures that we liked that suited us. And a conversation was had. And my wife, Christine, who's fellow owner of Empress Miniatures, sort of wandered in with the coffee, listened to this and said, why don't you just get them sculpted? to which we laughed and I said, are you seriously saying I can come spend some of our money on this then? Um, and we chatted away about it and decided actually this wouldn't be such a bad idea. So we uh, spoke to a sculptor that we knew at that point, which is Paul Hicks, um, who still is sculpting merrily for Empress Miniatures. And like all good war gamers, we are completely butterfly minded. And we went there to talk Vietnam and came out starting a Vietnam, uh, uh, a Zulu war range. Um, and it took us, I think now, 30, uh, about 11 years to get back to doing Vietnam. Um, so Empress Miniatures really started in that direction. Um, we both, Keith and myself and um, Christine all had jobs. Uh, Christine was a teacher. Both Keith and myself were working in jobs where we couldn't really tell anybody what we were doing other than our normal jobs. It would have created contractual issues. 
So um, we merely chugged on for a few years and then it got to the point where it just got too big. We couldn't do two jobs. We realized that. Um, I was older than Keith um, and got to the point where having decided I'd made a lot of other people quite wealthy um, and office politics being just getting tedious, etc., decided um, I thought I'd quite give it a go. So we sat down, all agreed it quite happily, and I took on Empress full time. And in the last, hmm, since it's been seven years or so, eight years since that happened, Christine's joined me full time. Keith and Lorraine, Keith's wife, are no longer involved in the business. Um, nothing nasty, quite amicably, um, because the Keith's job predominantly led him to work around Europe in different places. So um, that's really a very potted history of Empress Miniatures. All right, so I've noticed looking through um, your company because I found you have a wide selection of miniatures here. Um, so you started with the miniatures. Why did you add rules onto it? Because I think when I first, you know, I'd go through your miniature range, but then you had a set of rules called Danger Close. Mm. Um, what led to doing the rule designs? Um. We're figure designers and manufacturers. That's what we are interested in doing. But of course, if you're in the hobby, you start to play, you start to play games. It's a whole part of it. You, you want to pull them on a the table and roll some dice. So like everybody else, we all have our favorite rules. We all have rules that we don't quite like. We all have our own styles. Um, I was asked to write a set of rules for Osprey ooh, a few years ago now, um, which they published. And that wasn't linked to Empress whatsoever. Um, Danger Close was a set of ultra modern rules that were on two sides of A4, so um, very basic, um, quite easy to play, but did the job. And I didn't like playing a lot of modern rules were aimed at special forces, forming a side, kick a door down, rushing, see who kills who. And that's not really what I'm into. I'm into larger stuff, I'm into how a section, a platoon. Um, a company operates with support, et cetera, in the war zone. That's more where I'm at. So I looked at Danger Close, that was originally been written by Matt Moran, and we own the rights to. And we'd been asked by a lot of customers who were buying that, do you ever have plans to enlarge it? And they were really talking about ultra modern, which is really what it's aimed at. And I looked at it, and when we bought the Vietnam range out, we'd got to the point where we were playing Danger Close but in a much larger version than we sold um, to suit our needs. And invariably we were making up bits of rules as we went along, um, because as I will always say, the best bit of equipment you'll ever get is a really good gaming partner. Um, and really, as we got into Vietnam, we were being asked more and more, what rules do you play? And we were saying, well, we use this, but you can't buy it. And people are asking. Um, I looked at some of the rules on the market, all of which are exceptionally good, and there's an awful lot of them to shop around, but none of them scratched an itch for me. So I thought, well, this is probably a good chance to see if this develops. So I developed it, put it all into writing. Um, COVID hit two years ago, so we did play testing invariably um, on over Zoom all around the world. With we had a team of play testers. We were playing solo games. We even played, would you believe, um, with a team of Dungeon and Dungeons and Dragons guys. Um, and we played a Vietnam game where they were new to his, historical war gaming. And we had a dungeon master in effect, an umpire. And they didn't know who I was. Um, and I was the NBA player. And they played the various Marine commanders of a platoon. Um, but we did it as a role-play game using the rules, and it worked amazingly well. And I suddenly thought, well, this is actually saleable. This is printable. This is, I think, works exceptionally well. This is what people may be interested in looking at. Um, so chatted to a good friend of mine, Dave Ryan of Caliber Books, who's, um, by the name, you can tell books, is into printing. Said, so was he interested? I've uh, known Dave for 40 years plus. And he said, yeah, sure. So put it together, worked it out. And there you go, it was released a few days ago. 
Now, when you um, when you put out these rules, did you say there's a gap in the marketplace? Because I've noticed, you know, you can flip through War Games Illustrated and WSNS, um, and there's just a flood of new Vietnam miniatures from a variety of countries. And I believe there are several existing rule sets uh, that cover uh, the Vietnam period. Did you say that there's all these rules out here, but I have identified a gap. There's something missing. Not really, no. Empress uh, Miniatures, when it was set up, and this continues to a very large degree now, we set up to produce figures, and this includes rules, bearing in mind um, we've only just started getting into this. Uh, we produce figures where we didn't specifically discern that there was a gap in the market. We just wanted figures that we wanted to design because the periods we wanted to get involved in, we didn't think the figures out there were as good as we wanted them to be. Um, and in a way that's followed on from the rules and that's no disrespect to anybody else's rules or anything else. We simply looked at it, or I simply looked at it and said, is there a gap in the market? Well, it might be, a lot of people keep asking me what we play and a lot of people are interested. Um, I knew from the play tests um, that the guys came back and nobody, uh, lots of sort of suggestions, ideas, but nobody went, oh my God, these are complete and utter rubbish. They don't work. Um, everybody said they're good. So it was a kind of a, um, if, if they crash and burn, they crash and burn um, and retake the hit. But I just wanted to get them out there because we've been asked so often to do it. And it, as I said, it's the same as us designing a range of figures. We got into doing um, the Vietnam figures, um, I suppose, four years ago. And there were ranges of Vietnam figures out there. And we just looked at it and I said, well, I wanted to do this. I'm going, you know, I need to scratch this itch. We still haven't done it. And we looked at it. You then get to the point in that, which is a bit more detail, is where do you start in Vietnam? Now, we already had a range of figures for French Indochina. Um, and the French Indochina conflict is significantly different. It's similar but different to the American incursion. Um, so we, I kind of looked at it and thought, well, let's go for Huay Tet 68. You've got an iconic look to the figures. You've got Marines in Huay that are very iconic. You've got the NBA seriously beginning to look like regular soldiers. Um, and so that's what we went for. That's not where the ranges will start. It, it, it will develop and it will continue to develop because obviously it's an interest of mine. And so it already covers um, Anzacs, a few, there'll be a lot more. Um, it covers Arvin, a few, there'll be a lot more. And it will go on to cover our areas uh, such as regular army. Um, we've got special forces, a few, there'll be a lot more. And it will just keep going. So it, it's, that's how we do it. We are not, we are commercially successful, but we run a very tight ship, but we don't necessarily make decisions based on a commercial decision, which may seem incredibly strange, but I've given up the hope of ever being a millionaire based on what we sell in the war games world. It doesn't quite work like that. Um, so I want to sell something that I consider to be um, the best, um, I want to sell the best quality. I want to not wake up at two o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat thinking, oh my God, I'm selling rubbish. It's not my style. And all of that logic with figures kind of follows on from the rules. Well, so we've danced around it and you have this uh, rule set and it's called Bohica. Could you mind telling the listeners uh, what that acronym stands for? Yeah, it's American military slang of the period for bend over, here it comes again. Um, which is basically um, typical military slang of really any nation, but a good Marine slang, I think it's from the Marines, um, which gives a good idea of Vietnam in that it's the same day, same problem, it's never going away, and it just keeps going on and on. And that was not just a snappy title. It, it pretty much caught my imagination when it came to the rules, because the rules are designed to give, how can I put this, military management challenge. Um, that I'm not, again, going back to what I said earlier, I'm not into sets of rules that are too gamey. Um, I'm not 
of the 40k era. As I said, I'm from the epic side. Um, a lot of my background is military kind of based, um, working in the military and stuff like that in the past. So it, I'm more into that management structure and a player having a management problem to deal with, whether that's what tactics to choose when dealing with a scenario, uh, what weapons to deploy, suddenly a problem hitting him that he didn't expect, not just a mine going off, but suddenly running out of water or, or whatever the situation is. Um, and Bohica captured that sort of feeling and the rules, I've tried to capture that in the rules in a way. Well, let me ask you then. Um, so in the United States, we define rules two ways. Um, the beer and pretzel. So as you said, the most important person to have um, is a friend to play with. So there's the beer and pretzel games and then there are the tournament games, the uh, Warhammers, the Infinities. Um, where do you see this game fitting in that continuum do you imagine someday bohica gts being hosted in london uh no i I can't imagine if they do they can organize it themselves um no not really i think i'd call it beer and pretzels we we certainly have a beer and um as we call it crisps um over here and it's it's people having a historical military fun which is always a bit scary considering we're playing about war zones but it's, um, it's people enjoying it, enjoying the history. And history is a big part of what we do. So I would say it's beer and pretzels, but a bit more serious, but not horrendously, tediously boring serious, uh, because that just becomes a lesson. And that, that's not greatly what this is about. So probably more on the beer and pretzel side. You could use them in tournament games, um, but I have no belief that that's where they're going. Well, since we started that, what what are the mechanics of the game? Um, what drives this? Uh, D6, D10, cards? You have one dice, which is a D20. So all calculations, all effects are done with the roll of just one dice, which um, means that you're not scrambling around trying to find weird things like average dice and D4. Um, we do use in the system one other form of dice, which is literally a dice that um, can be any number of surfaces and it's simply paint arrows onto it. And it's a way of determining such things as wind direction or if uh, grenades or artillery do not hit the spot and will land somewhere else. And it's just a very quick, easy way of working that one out. But it's D20 really, it's as simple as that. That's the basic um, tool that you need. All right. Um, so when you have your forces out there, um, imagine, are you aiming for a simulation game, trying to simulate um, what the wars were really like there? Or are you going more like the bolt action, the movie cinematic? So um, you want to reenact Platoon. You can, to be honest, you can do both. I mean, I, I, the rules are written so that you can replay Platoon if you want. Um, the mechanism is, is quite simple. You can play it uh, with a small number of figures. So you could do a unit of, say, four men against four men. That works. Or you can scale it up and use it for platoon actions with three squads. Um, so an American platoon is, say, 34 guys. You can go bigger. You can go to company level. Uh, you, we've even done it larger than that. You can add on to it aircraft, helicopters. Uh, armoured vehicles, there's rules for all that type of stuff. Now, what the main mechanism behind it is something called skills and drills, which is that each figure, or let's say unit, and that unit can be any size that you decide depending on the game you want to play, has a skill and drill level, and that ranges from one to five. And five's the best, and one's the worst. And you decide with your unit that you uh, want to represent, say, a Marine unit, um, 1968, Tet Offensive. So you're going to make your squad of, um, say, eight guys, you're going to make them level four. That means that they get four actions. Uh, When you're doing morale, they add four. When you're doing spotting, etc., they're adding four. So it's quite simple. You might pick... um, 
an Arvin unit, no disrespect to Arvin, but you might pick an Arvin unit and give them a three. You may pick um, a Marine platoon and give one squad a four, one squad a three. You might give the platoon command a three because there's a new LT out there. Um, you may give one of the other squads a five. So you've got a variation of the theme. You may decide to break one of those squads down into its fire teams and give each one of those a different um, skill and drill. And that means they get different action points. Now, the action points relate to what they can do in that move. Now, in that move, <clears throat> with an action point, you can spend it like money. So you may get a Marine who decides to um, use one action point laying down, one action point spotting, see something, one action point aiming, and if he's got four, it's a level of skills and drills of four, he's got one last action point, and that is he's aimed, he fires, then you roll, does he hit? You take it on from there. Um, if you're using a unit that's only got three, you suddenly realise that becomes a slower thing. So it starts, you start to get units operate slightly differently. And if you mix and match it up, once you get into the rules and get a bit more skilled with it, even within your own unit, you get quite a lifelike response that you would get in action with, say, 10 guys or 30-odd guys, where it's all slightly different. Vehicles operate similarly in that the crews get an action point. So if you're in a pattern tank, the crew will get um, be given a skills and drills level. But the vehicle kind of operates. So each vehicle will have a certain number of um, moves it can make that link to that type of vehicle. And they're all broken down in a number of moves of six inch. Um, that changes if they're reversing, if they're turning around a the corner, um, they've where they decide to stop and fire, and then the skills and drills coming. So it all sounds very complex, but it's really not. Well, how how much can you customize your force here? Because what you've described is being able to run anything from, you know, the small uh, six man seal boat up to platoons, what's what's the balancing mechanism here? Do you use a, a point system to assign points to different elements you can add to your force? No, no, um, I'm not a great fan of that sort of stuff. The, the controlling mechanism is historic, real orders of battle. So you um, link it into what your scenario is. Um, and one of the important parts of it, although it's not scenario driven, it, because it, it always scares me when rules say that, because I feel that it constrains the player to do something quite specific. Um, what actually happens in the rules is that, that um, say, the controlling player, the one who's invited the other guys around or whatever, designs the scenario. Um, within that scenario, they work out what the forces are. So they're trying to re recreate that. Now, in the rules, there is also a random effects chart. And a random effects chart is the first thing you do every move. And it has 20 different points on it that you have created that link to the scenario you're going to play. And they can range between anything such as um, an extreme one where you suddenly get a VC suicide bomber running out of nowhere at you to... Um, uh, an MVA mortar strike that's come off table and lands in a specific pre-designated spot. And those 20 points are um, every move you roll with a D20 and you see what it comes up with. Now, so that those 20 points do not take over a game, you can leave a lot of them with no effect. Again, it depends on the scenario you're playing. That means that you can play games solo because you simply make one side or the other operate from those 20 random points. Um, and during lockdown, for example, it was quite interesting because some of the play testing was done in a solo manner and the enemy simply became controlled by those 20 points and operated extremely well. Now, at the back of the set of rules, there are um, five scenarios all designed, all based on different facets of the Vietnam War, but all designed to uh, give you a, a lead into playing the rules. And the very first one 
doesn't even have a map for the for the uh, table layout. It simply says lay it out anywhere you want. It's a marine platoon, literally starting from one side of a table on a patrol to get to the other side, and then within the random effects chart that each scenario has its own random effects chart that I have created to illustrate the different things you can do with it um, are things like a spider hole. So you roll whatever number and a VC pops out of a spider hole. Uh, you roll another number and they suddenly there's a, um, a booby trap. So you've got to then operate your guys to do they spot that. When they discover that, what do they do? And then that has an effect on that operation. So having played that game two or three times solo and then passed it on to one of the other playtesters who also did it, we found it worked amazingly well. It was quite tense and it was great. And it actually gave you some time to think about what you were trying to achieve. Well, let me ask you, how long were you thinking of one of these games lasting? So if someone picks up this game, is this a 30 minute, 45, an hour? What's the average run of one of these games? It, it very much depends again, on how big you're playing it. We've played it at, I suppose, two companies aside, one-on-one. Um, -on -one. So you're looking at, say, 70, 80 figures, plus armor, plus vehicles, plus aircraft. Um, and I have to say, it nearly killed us over an, a, a six-hour period because there was so much going on. But it worked, and it was a good laugh, but it, 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 was, it was hard work. Um, you couldn't chat too much, how to get on with it. But if you're doing a platoon game, and it depends on the scenario, um, and it depends on the table layout. And I would always say to anyone, have a busy table layout. It's more realistic. Because even if you sort of play your games on a dead flat table, life's not like that, unless you're doing it on a football field. You've got to put some dead ground in there, etc. If you're doing that, you're looking probably at um, anything between, I don't know, hour and a half, two hours, three hours. So it's an, it's an evening's entertainment. It's good for um, club gaming. It's good for, the, you know, getting your mates around and just playing a game in the evening. Well, how many uh, runs through do you imagine it takes before you uh, pick up the rules? So let's say I, I get the rules, take it down. We don't use clubs. We organize around uh, different shops. But I take it to the shop and say, okay, I've got this game. Um, how long does it take for someone to pick it up? I would say if you were going to, in that particular um, way that you're talking, if you've managed to play a couple of games solo on your own or read through the rules and you've got an idea what you're going, you're doing, I would say go down to your shop, set up a game and play with two or three guys, doesn't really matter, um, fairly rapidly. I mean, I think they'd, they'd pick it up. Once they play one game, they get a good idea what's going on. By the second game, they'd start to seriously start to think in a military fashion, such as don't bunch up, um, use the ground, be careful what's going on. Uh, and quite rapidly, I'll give you an example. When we played the role play game, the Dungeons and Dragons thing, none of the guys playing played historical games. Their entire experience on Vietnam was watching Hollywood movies. And so from the first move when they kind of, not, not really, but kind of blundered into onto the table, not knowing what to expect. I'd say by about the third move, they'd seriously started to realize, okay, I've got to think about this. And they did. Um, so you can pick it up quite quickly. It's quite intuitive. What, uh, what play area did you envision for this? Like three by three, four by six, what was, or does it depend on what uh, the scenario and the scale of the forces you're bringing? It, it depends on the scale. You can make it as big or small as you want. Um, I like big games, which is nonsensical because I invariably set up a huge table and then play on one small part of it. But you can play games of um, four foot by four foot, which is a fairly traditional size of games easily on something like that, very easily. Um, we've played really large games on six by 16, which is my table. But in all honesty, you can play, and we have done a six by 16 foot table area, but literally just have a small number of figures because you've got a lot of training and you're trying to get across it. Um, you can make it any size you want. 
Now, I'm very aware of the questions you're asking me. I sound like I'm trying to please everyone. But quite literally, the rules were written in a way to replicate um, Vietnam warfare. I'm not going to say that it's 100% accurate in some bits, and people will always read into things what they, that they don't understand or they, they want to read into things. But it, it does actually work. It does get you into that sweaty, horrible, miserable atmosphere where by using the random effects chart, suddenly the weather rains on your parade in a big way with a heavy duty rainstorm for say three moves, depends what you put in the random effects chart and your radio communications suddenly stop happening. Or you contact um, the firebase, get some artillery support in and your radios go offline. Or the random effects thing says that the barrage that's coming suddenly isn't landing where you thought it was going to land. So you can do anything you want and you can make it any size you want. It's about getting people thinking. Um, which is why, in a way, as I said to you, doing it as a competition play, I'm not sure it would work, but you would have to constrain it. Otherwise, you could get somebody get really upset because they've lost simply based on they rolled some really bad dice on a random effects chart. Yeah, so the, the way it's sounding to me is that Bohica is a framework of how to manage different forces on the field, and it's up to the scenarios are the constraints. That's what bounds the victory conditions for the players. Yeah, it, I suppose that's probably true. Um, you Well, the one thing that's interesting about any war zone, I suppose, and certainly about Vietnam, is if you look at the unit organizations um, within the, any military. So if you compare how the Marine, um, a Marine battalion and a um, company platoon, how that's set up, how many men it had, what weapons it used, and compare it with an army one, it's different. If you then, then compare it with an Australian, New Zealand, an Anzac unit, it's different. Compare it with Arvin, it's different. So each one of those organizations obviously knew what they were doing and set it up in the way they thought the best, which means that every one of those army units can walk into a scenario, um, a situation, and will respond to it differently based on their order of bats. So for example, the Marines kept all their M60s as a support unit, and then would dish them out if they thought necessary into the platoons whereas the army tended to put an M60, as did the Australians and New Zealanders, put it within the, the section, the squad. So again, you've got that constraint going on, how you identify it. And that was important because you do get a lot of players um, look at it and tend to look at, say, Arvin and write them off because of um, a lot of bad propaganda that they've got. But in actual fact, a lot of those troops are very good. But it also adds to the game because you're using a different troop type. Um, and I remember listening to one um, American vet who was asked a simple question. Um, how good were the MVA and how good were the VC? And he said he met very good MVA and VC units and he met some pretty bad ones. It very much depended on the day. And that you can simulate by reducing their... Um, skills and drills, uh, link into the scenario. You can weight the random effects chart. So it's, it's very variable. It, it, it's, it is, I suppose, scenario driven, as you said, but it's slightly beyond that as well. Well, that leads me to my question of what do you consider the time period? So you already mentioned like the first Indochine uh, war and the Americans were part of the second Indochina war from the Vietnamese perspective. But when most Americans think of Vietnam, it's actually mostly 67 to 69. Do you see yourself covering from like 45 to 78, like all three uh, Indochina yeah. wars? Yeah, the, the rules are actually dated 1945 to 1970, dot, 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 dot. So it, it goes beyond, um, to be honest, it goes even arguably beyond the end of the Vietnam War when the, the South has disappeared and you get such things as um, uh, a war with China. You can play the, uh, the rules that are fine for that. The French Indochina uh, War is, is very, I wouldn't say complex, it's just very different because you get 
that immediate post-World War II situation where the French are trying to cling on um, to sections of their old empire and they are using weapons from anywhere they can get them. So um, their organization or their weapons are not as good as they could be because they just don't have the equipment. Gradually by the late 40s, early 50s, they are more organized as you would expect. Um, the Viet Minh similarly um, are really a guerrilla force, um, predominantly having been fighting the Japanese during World War II, who really would like their country back, please, mister, and are equipped with anything they can get their hands on. And as time goes on, they, get, they start to get more and more supplies by China, a lot of it ex-Soviet going through China, then ending up in uh, Vietnam, um, to the point where, at one point, they actually had better equipment than the French because the Americans put a political embargo um, on sending weapons to support the French cause because they didn't want the empire being put back in place. Uh, but they were quite happy to send weapons to China. Um, and of course, a lot of those weapons then were being passed to the Viet Minh. So the Viet Minh were quite well supplied at one point. Um, but it does develop, and towards the, uh, after the Mbem Phu, when the French um, decide to leave, you get again a, a period of time where you have got a north-south, where you get a peace process, uh, which is fairly illusionary. And then you, after that, after two or three years, you start to get a conflict with guerrilla warfare, etc., which gradually leads into free world forces coming into to try and prop up the south. But it covers, the rules cover all those areas. So bolt action rifles are common in both conflicts. If you look at a lot of the equipment that the VC particularly using, even towards the end of, uh, or in the early 70s, some of them are um, literally just homemade equipment. All right, because I was wondering about um, Cambodia and Laos, because from the first Indochina war, the French perspective is all Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, were all one unified um, colony. So you actually have a wide variety of terrain there. So, I mean, I know a lot of people think of the Mekong Delta and um, the deep jungle, but there are mountainous regions, hilly regions, um, you know, fighting with the Hmong militia uh, up country. Um, and then you get to the Vietnam um, where there's the Marine section, the Navy section and the army section. So that is a big universe to try to tackle there. Yeah, and the, the rules work for that because it's, it's, a, it's a change in terrain. Again, a lot of, um, a lot of issues, um, for example, weather plays an important part in all of our lives. Weather has played historically a massive part in most conflicts, um, whether it's Napoleon's retreat from Moscow in an extreme or um, the French fighting in Algeria, in the 1890s in extreme heat and sand and being pretty miserable. Uh, it plays a huge part. But weirdly, it's, it's really covered in rules these days. And it has to be said, even in rules it's covered, let's be honest, we all invariably go, oh yeah, we, we, we just ignore that. It bogs it down a bit because it, it, um, it does ruin the flow slightly. Um, Again, the random effects chart brings weather in and taking into account that Vietnam geography and weather is pretty extreme. It, it, in a way, it's the third force in the entire conflict. There was a danger if I wrote very separate rules for that, it would take over and become extremely boring. So again, the random effects chart is used to bring weather into it. My example on, on suddenly a, a massive down um, um, rainstorm creating problems. So when you're writing your scenario, where is it? What's the terrain? Have a look at it, um, find out, and then write that into that random effects chart. All right, so I'm, I'm gonna deviate. I, I normally have a little script here, but um, there's a pet interest I have, paradrops in insurgencies. So there's probably only like three countries that would use parachute insertion for troops um, into insurgency. So the French in Indochina, the Rhodesians and the Egyptians. Um, 
does your rule set cover that the intricacies of um, dropping troops into jungles? Well, I would go back and say actually the Brits were, were fantastic at doing it and, and did it in Malaya, for example. But um, it currently does not. And there's a reason that there's a number of areas that will be reinforced in that having uh, written the rules. It's they're coming out at 80 pages and you start to think, OK, this is this, this is in danger of becoming Lord of the Rings. Um, so we kind of stop there. And now certain areas that it covers and rules are covering it. Uh, parachute drops are not currently covered. Um, and it actually says the very last section of the rules um, is entitled, where do we go from here? And that's if they are reasonably commercial success, commercially successful and people are happy and want to. The plan is to then do some scenario books and concentrate on different areas. Uh, and one of those areas, there's a number of areas, Brownwater Navy, which is covered um, in that you can use them um, from Bohica rules, but there would be a supplement that covers off Brownwater Navy as, as one of the main areas. There'd be a, um, another scenario book which would be predominantly linked to French Indochina and would cover parachute drops because the parachute thing with the French is fascinating. Um, for example, one thing that they discovered was that our, uh, well, their version of Arvin, local Vietnamese French paratroopers, because they weighed less, they were using French Western style para parachutes, is when they dropped, they scattered a much larger distance because they didn't have the physical weight to bring the parachute down. So they had to take that into account when they were doing drops. Um, putting that into a set of rules and on a game beating table, I just think it's fantastic because whoever's controlling that force has got to take that into account. Uh, so there'll be a scenario book covering that. Um, hopefully there'll be a scenario book covering firebase operations, etc. So that's all planned. That's really based on what happens in the next two or three months as to do we sell it. Uh, at the moment, the publisher is very happy. He's, he's beaming. Um, I'm quite surprised at, at how many have been sold in the last four days. So <laughs> hopefully that's good. If it doesn't happen, what will happen, because I'll be doing it anyway for my own personal use, is we'll simply probably put it on the Facebook page or something and scenarios and, and support and helping out well, and I, I like the idea of the scenario book expansions because I've noticed rule sets when they cover a period take two formats, um, kind of like bolt action, where you have the main rule book and then you have theater guides and they add um, different special rules, different units for when you're focusing between um, the northern deserts of Africa versus um, Burma. Um, but is there a campaign feature to this rule set? So let's say I'm in the Highlands. Um, I have my uh, Viet Cong or um, and my NVA platoon and I have like an American uh, platoon and we're fighting in the same district um, and we can do multi-link games. Is that an option in this rule set or will it be an option in the uh, scenario books? Um, it will be an option in the scenario books. Um, it's not an option in this game again because I figured to do it would take 10 to 15 pages easily um, to lay it out properly. Um, there's uh, FNG do a fantastic sort of campaign thing where you, you track a, a particular character figure that you've got and, and work your way through, which is very clever. But Bohica will, I'm not sure if I'll, I'll do anything like that, but Bohica will add a campaign element to it. So in the scenario books, if we concentrate, as he's planned at the moment, on French Indochina, there is a logic of um, putting the scenarios in that link to an extended campaign. Or even if we do it in the book, I mean, I'd, I'd probably it, take, it works for me that there'd be 10 different scenarios in each book. Um, one scenario would be extreme probably very few people will be able to actually get all the troops, all the figures, all the vehicles, et cetera, and have the plane surface to do it. But it's, it's an aspirational thing, but it also illustrates um, different rules mechanisms for specific things. Um, there's, a logic, there's a logic also then in doing that in, in perhaps having three of the other scenarios 
as a form of mini campaign in each of the different areas. So again, French, French Indochina, you could have an early scenario um, where you've got literally just after the end of the war, for example, British, with the help of Japanese troops, trying to police a district against local guerrillas, which is never really ever thought about too much. Um, the British were really clever on this one. They, the general in command very rapidly politically said, get us out of here, um, which they did very rapidly. But um, you could start off with that. You could do one late 40s. Um, you've got the French use of mobile columns, which were constantly getting ambushed. So, yeah, you can do anything with that, parachute drops, etc. Well, that leads to this point. Where can I get these rules right now? Like, if I, I've listened to this, I'm interested in the game, um, where can I get the book? Um, they're a dual thing between Empress Miniatures and Caliber Books. Um, both of our businesses have distributors. I, I've let Dave, who's done all the printing, et cetera, um, sort all the distributor thing out. I know Dave Caliber Books sells through um, a company called On Military Matters based in the US. So they'll be selling them. Um, I'm hoping that our US distributor, Age of Glory, will be selling them. Um, I need to talk to Steve. Uh, so you can get any of those places, really. All right. And now, I was going through your um, range of managers for the Vietnam period. Um, what, one, I will say I'm, I'm happy with the Arvin collection because I think um, Arvin, especially the paratroopers and commando units, are often uh, forgotten and neglected. Um, so it's happy to see some of those other forces there. So um, just for those listeners, what kind of forces do you offer right now on your website? To, um, so I got the Bahika rulebook and I'm ready to build my force. What do you have in your collections right now? And where do you see on taking it? Um, the Empress Miniatures collection of figures at the moment, we have a very large um, number of USMC American Marines aimed at uh, late 67, 68 and beyond. Uh, that's going to be added to by a few more packs to finish it off because um, I can't think how many figures is in that range, but it's, it's probably close to 100, I would have thought easily, um, because I wanted to do a range that had every type of weapon type and enough different figures to have a figure for everyone you would need in a platoon um, because that's just what I wanted to do. Um, that will develop. We'll be getting into some earlier Marines with M14s. We will then get on in the, in the future to be doing air cav, um, probably into also US infantry. We just need to sit down and work out what major differences there are with those. We've got some special forces in that we've got Navy, a Navy SEAL unit, and that includes um, LSSC boat. We have uh, a PBR, which has a number of crews in it, one historic one and one based on Apocalypse Now. Um, we have um, a SOG unit. Um, where will the Americans go? As I said, we'll be doing Army, but we will also be moving on to more special forces and also more localised troops such as Montignards, etc. Arvin will continue to develop. At the moment, we're doing paratroopers. Once we've got that fairly neatly finished, so you can put together a platoon unit, and it's not far off now. I've got another four figures coming out quite soon, which should be enough to do that. Um, we will be looking at doing earlier Arvin, using Garand's earlier equipment, World War II equipment, um, and probably do a personality figure of Schwarzkopf, who was an officer with one. Uh, Anzacs, we have enough to do um, probably about two squads, two sections in, in British colonial terms. Uh, we'll, be, we'll be adding to them. I'll be adding some special forces, um, Australian SAS, uh, and that will develop. We've got vehicles made for them, Land Rovers, etc., which we need to sort out, um, crew up, etc. So that will be getting some love. Um, we've got vehicles for all of those, from pattern tanks to otters to M113s. Um, we've got a duster 
due for release in the next couple of weeks, just finishing the crew off. On the that, other that, side, that's insane. The duster is an insane one. And the thought of like, this is designed to shoot planes. Like, what if we aim it at the ground? <laughs> yeah, you just you just need one on the table, though, don't you? I mean, you just gotta have one. Um, it's my favorite, it's the mule. I just love the mule. You just think of all the technology that's going on, they come up with basically a golf cart. Um, you've um, NVA uh, with fairly heavily covered. There's a not sure how many figures with that, but it must be not so not far off a hundred, I would guess. Um, quite a lot of NVA. Um, we've got civilians and also uh, local militia types that link into them. So that every civilian figure that we've got, also you can buy the same figure but armed. Um, so that you can suddenly turn a little old lady into a, um, using a, an MG34 German light machine gun. Uh, so you've got that so you can do civilians and civilians do play a part in Bohica. They're one of those interesting things where these nice smiling people suddenly start to try and kill you and vice versa. Um, we have got some VC. We need to do more VC and develop that side of it. Uh, moving forward, to be honest, the sky's the limit. As I said, it, it, it's I'd quite like to get on and do some things like South Koreans because they're never dealt with, and the South Korean forces were extremely good, very professional. Uh, had a um, did some very interesting operations, uh, but one also pushed the parameters of the peers. We do, as I said, um, when we do air cav, I'm probably thinking into doing earlier period air cap. So the first sort of air operations. So um, by the end, it will be all encompassing and it will often take a few years because it's taken us four years to get where we are. And it's a pretty large range. So it's one of the largest Vietnam ranges out there. Um, it just keep developing. Well, let me ask you about um, using this rule set for um, off-brand uses. So you've already mentioned Malaya. So uh, the Malaya emergency and um, I don't think people in the U.S. are quite aware of like probably one of the more successful counterinsurgency operations by the British uh, to restore that colony, but also um, the Dutch uh, attempting to restore control of the Indonesia. What do you what do you think about using Bohika for those types of campaigns? Say I want to put my SAS guys out with a Gurkha company. Yeah, I, I've never really thought about it, but quite easily. They're, they're very adaptable to that um, because the basic mechanism is fairly foolproof. Uh, you can quite easily just by changing the units. And it doesn't, I mean, I don't, I do not really like generic rules because it, I think they lose character and flavor of the particular fight that you're trying to recreate. But in that instance, in that example you, you give there, they're very easily tweakable. And the big difference, really is the constraint would be the types of weapons but the rules cover from 45 on and in Malaya the Brits are using or beginning to go from World War II type stuff to getting sort of um, SLR rifles etc so um, yeah quite easily I, I can see that working quite well well that's um that's why listening to you explain since you covered basically a 30-year period and they got the transition from the World War two weapon systems up to what was standard in the um, Cold War uh, through the 60s and 70s, it does say with your terrain rules, there's actually several parts of the country that were experiencing, of the world that were experiencing conflict, say um, Zaire, uh, the Congo area, Indonesia, uh, Thailand. So basically be just saying, well, what from Bohica would translate into some of those other local forces like uh some of the mad dogs that's why the i'm main, very interested in it yeah the main game mechanism would translate really easily um but you're back to what i was saying earlier about having scenario books that are quite specific to specific parts of the conflict and if you look at for example um going back to your early example of malaya um if we did and i'm not saying we will but if um because it's not something that I'm greatly particularly interested in, but 
if we did a scenario book on it, you could put some specialised rules in there and um, bolt it onto Bohica. And I had no doubt it would work very well because it would be in the same time frame as French Indochina. Well, it was all part of that uh, domino theory. Yeah, I, absolutely, absolutely. And the Brits, um, I'm just saying this because I'm Brit, a Brit, but they, they were very, very successful in doing what they were doing. And I know certainly um, American general staff looked uh, and took advice of the Brits in the early days as to how to operate. But the Brits sort of did have a different way of doing things and were successful in what they did there. Um, I think they're coming to criticism in recent years for some of the stuff they were doing, but hey, it's a war zone, that happened. But it, it, it yeah, it's the, the actual boots on the ground thing and the conflict on a, on a simple skirmish basis, battle basis, works fairly well. Now, so as we start wrapping this up, um, one of the things I've noticed is, why didn't you pursue the Kickstarter route? So I've noticed several established companies, um, instead of you know rolling the dice, and contacting a um, publisher and you know taking the risk on publishing a certain number of books, we'll just go to Kickstarter to measure interest in a um, in a product. What was your thought when you did that? You know, going the traditional route versus something like Kickstarter. We did Empress did a Kickstarter. Wow, about eight years ago, I think it was on ultra, ultra modern range. We were one of the first in the UK to to use Kickstarter for uh, war games figures. And it was very successful, I mean, incredibly successful. We, we hit target, I think it was in 24 hours, which scared the living daylights out of us. Um, and uh, because we still had another sort of 29 days to go or something. Um, we could have followed that route, but it adds strain to the business in many respects, because it's it, you've got to keep fueling it. Um, and I have enough contacts within the industry um, that have gone back for years to actually sit down and look at it and find a, a nice, easier option. I mean, by doing it that way, I suppose all the money could have been mine. <laughs> but it's not kind of really about that. As I said before, it's about getting it out there and producing a fun game. I, I, um, counting the money is great fun, but I'd much rather people sat down and enjoyed what they were doing. Um, I'm not expecting to win best war games rules on the planet um, because it, it really ever works like that. So doing it the Kickstarter way um, wasn't even a thought and isn't a thought. And we haven't done one since we did the first one. Well, one good thing I'd say about Kickstarter was not the um, not getting the finance to create something although that was good. And it did, we did get an awful lot. We, we got a huge range done very rapidly. Um, it was the marketing because it did, um, it does by its very nature open um, a lot of doors. A lot of people suddenly see you that perhaps wouldn't have noticed you. So that's very good. But in all honesty, it never even came up. It just, we just never thought about doing it. And when it comes to the supplement books, I don't think I would go that way either. I'd much rather do it with people who know what they're doing and, and be friendly about it. Well, let me ask you, um, I know there are some companies that like are established enough like yourself to do the traditional approach of, I believe in this product line, I'm going to release it. And even if they don't have to, they turn to Kickstarter and say, the marketing is just brilliant on here. I can get attention um, a lot more easily for my dollars than I could in any other um, outlet there but you know in, in today's constraints there with like um supply chain issues would it make sense to go that route um just so you know well this is the lot i have to deliver i mean with metal prices and getting your hands on stocks um is there something to that that de-risks it for you um not really actually the opposite way around because what can suddenly happen? I mean, um, when the Kickstarter thing started in the UK, because we were pretty followed on from the US, and I think we were about a year behind or something, there were some people who, let's just say, didn't quite understand the monster they were dealing with. 
Um, and there were instances of people getting incredibly excited that lots of people were funding their project and then started to run very fast to keep fueling the demand within the Kickstarter. And then when it came to actually producing it, um, literally fell over because they just couldn't produce the volumes that they had to produce it at the cost that they thought they could produce it. Um, and I, I do know one example that I won't mention where there are VAT tax laws in the UK and companies under a certain amount of money, I can't think what it is now, I think it's about 80,000, um, do not pay VAT, which is 20% tax. Um, and they were under the VAT, did the Kickstarter, which pushed them over the VAT, and they'd never taken the 20% into account. So suddenly they got a massive financial problem because they're, they're doing all this work and losing money doing it. Um, so you have to be careful with what you're doing with that. We're not in that situation. Um, but the problem is with a Kickstarter is it does give you huge amounts of advertising at the cheapest possible rate you can ever imagine. But it can take over. And if you take Bohica, it's one part of what Empress does. And Empress looks like quite a big company. We have a huge range of figures. Um, we are quite well respected, et cetera, for the products, the customer service, et cetera, in the industry. But there's actually on a day-to-day -day basis here, only two of us doing it. Um, we don't manufacture anything here. We own all the molds, et cetera, that's manufactured somewhere else. So there are other people there working on it, but they're not related to day-to-day. -day. So if we suddenly put something out through um, a month's campaign where everybody's getting very excited and all jumping on it and you're having to add stuff to it and work on this, you are going to let the rest of the business lapse. You just can't physically do it. And that's unfair on the business and unfair on your other customer base. Yeah, I think I, I, uh, I have the War Games Illustrated issue of where they covered, like they had took sh uh, a couple shots of the inside of your operations. So uh, metal everywhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, nicely organized. Not just dumped in boxes, although I'm sitting at the moment and looking around me thinking, hmm, there is quite a lot of boxes here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a small operation. It's all uh, we operate on from premises linked into our home, etc. So we're lucky because we, we've got quite a large um, a number of buildings and a, a, it's an old farm, in effect. So we're kind of lucky in that respect. But it, it's still um, just two of us on a day to day basis doing all of the the sales, the marketing, sorting stuff out, the research, et cetera, um, the purchasing, the operational side, blah, blah, blah. We just work very fast and very hard. You know, something I forgot to ask you, um, your Bohica rules, are those downloadable? Do you have a PDF option? No, we don't. Um, we do for Danger Close. That's why I noticed. I was wondering, I saw Danger Close because I've looked at those rules before. So I didn't know if that was an option or will be an option for Bohica. It's not planned to be an option um, because it it can create problems. Um, we get it with Danger Close, suddenly something will happen to the server or there's a problem or issue. It's rare, but it does happen. And then um, you get some customer who's ordered something on a Friday night and we're perhaps away and not in the office till Monday morning. He's desperate to get a hold of a copy. And for some reason, it hasn't linked in or it's gone into his spam box. He can't find it or whatever. So the thought of doing that with two sides of A4 is bad enough. We're trying to do it with 80 pages. Just scares the living daylights out of me. So, um, so we don't have any plans to do that at all. Uh, I'm afraid it's all being a bit old fashioned. And it's a good old fashioned book that you can thumb through. Uh, well, I have to admit, I always end up just buying both. One for home and one for when I travel. <laughs> but um we'll go ahead and wrap up this uh interview here but is there anything you want to, to throw out there anything i missed that we didn't talk about or something you really want to get out and uh, mention before we conclude no not particularly um it's been a great chat thanks for inviting me um i think really if anybody does have any interest and have any questions the best place over email Impress miniatures, or there is, as I've said, a Facebook page called Bohica, um, which people are welcome to join and ask some questions. That's only been open for about a week, and there's quite a few hundred people already come on to and joined it. 
um, and are asking questions. Uh, and that's great, you know, do it in a friendly fashion. It's a nice friendly community. Hope you, hope it stays that way, please. Um, but no, I mean, rules are a very personal thing. I mean, I, I collect rules. I've got quite a lot of rules for lots of different periods. I, there are some fantastic rules of different periods I absolutely love. And there are lots of other rules that I really have never played, having tried to read them. It's a very personal thing. Some people are not going to like them. Some people are going to just love them and um, want to hold them close to them all their life. It, it's just how it is. But it's certainly what we play. It's certainly what we have enjoyed playing. And it certainly has given us everything we wanted out of a set of rules. The historic kick, the atmospheric kick, the fun. Um, and they're fast to play. So it just scratched all those itches. Well, outstanding. I know I'm interested in the rule set and I'll probably pick up that. I'll probably put an order for that and uh, danger close. I've just been trying to figure out, you got to make, you know, being in the U S when you order from a UK company, the order has to be large enough to make it worthwhile for the postage. So there's that balance. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. Don't make the package too heavy. But <laughs> no, no, we're good. We're quite good at sorting that out. Um, and we're also very conscious as well of ensuring that, that it gets to the customer. So everything is tracked. And in the last two years, that's been very important as the world's turned upside down and had a good shaking um, because post offices around the world have at times just collapsed. And so we've had to do things. We never let a customer down. If something, and we've got a customer uh, in Australia who a two very, very large orders have disappeared and seem to have disappeared into the ether. We'll track it through. We will find out what's going on. And ultimately, at the end, if it doesn't work out, uh, we'll replace it at our cost. We're not interested in upsetting people, ripping them off or causing any problems. Um, we want people to be happy with our toys. Uh, you, you just didn't tell that customer, I'm sorry, that's what you get for living in the middle of the end of the earth. <laughs> it's right towards that edge when it falls off into nothing. <laughs> I wouldn't dare say that to any Australian. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're lovable little diggers. <laughs> well, Paul, thank you very much for joining us. And I hope to have you on again. This has been very fascinating. Well, thank you. And I, I hope your listeners, um, I'm bored of in daylights, all of them, and um, well, they're not ranting at the, uh, the screen. So um, thanks very much for the invite. Good fun. And thank you for listening to Miniature Wargaming Labs. We'll see you next time.